What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, Tunisians have the chance to vote on a new constitution. It should be a chance to put the country's newish democracy on a firmer footing, but it won't. It's designed to further cement creeping autocratic rule, so many will just stay home. And for decades, Formula One was owned and run by one man, who believed the sport had no business moving into the digital age or into America. With him out of the picture, the sport seems to be making inroads on the other side of the Atlantic. First up, though. Millions of tons of grain have been stuck in Ukraine since February, hemmed in by a Russian blockade and captured ports on the Black Sea and by Ukraine's own mines. Food prices have skyrocketed the world over. Hundreds of millions of people have grown hungrier. So when a deal brokered by the United Nations and Turkey was struck on Friday to start the safe passage of grain cargo, the UN's Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was unsparing in his optimism. Today, there is a beacon on the Black Sea. A beacon of hope, a beacon of possibility, a beacon of relief in a world that needs it more than ever. By Saturday, the beacon had dimmed when Russian forces fired missiles at the port of Odessa, claiming they had been after military targets. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, disagreed, saying that no matter what Russia said or promised, it would find ways not to implement the deal. For now, anyway, it seems Ukraine is pressing ahead, planning to get ships on the move. But Saturday's strikes don't bode well for the solution to a global grain crisis. The attack came as a surprise to everybody, especially the United Nations, which had spent weeks, if not months, negotiating a deal to reopen the port of Odessa and other Ukrainian ports so that grain could finally get out onto world markets where the world is hungrily awaiting it. Anton LaGuardia is our diplomatic editor. There are two possible explanations. One is that the Russians wanted to strike a blow before the agreement came into force. There are several things that still need to be tied up in it. And the second possibility is that the Russians never took the agreement seriously. Nevertheless, symbolically at least, it looks very bad for the Russians, particularly at a time when the Russian foreign minister is traveling to try and drum up support in Africa for Russia's position. And so assuming that the deal does, from this point anyway, hold, how significant is it? Let's have a look at what it means. On the face of it, the agreement is important. 
The United Nations says 828 million people around the world are going hungry every night. And there are about 50 million people who are on the brink of starvation. Those numbers have been rising fast as a result of this war. World food prices were rising before Russia's invasion in February, but they shot up as a result of it because both Ukraine and Russia are very large exporters of grain and other food products. The fact is that Ukraine's grain had been stuck in port, and the port is the main way by which it got its exports out. Ukraine has been trying to open alternative routes through the Danube River, through uh, rail connections to Western Europe and also by road. But it's only been able to get about a third of the volume it used to get out by the Black Sea. Therefore, uh, the reopening of the ports was very important. There were two problems to overcome. One is Russia's blockade. It has been trying to squeeze Ukraine economically. And the other is Ukraine's own attempts to defend itself by mining the waters around Odessa and along its coast to prevent a Russian amphibious operation. So this was a good step for the world. Grain prices dropped very quickly on the day the agreement was signed, but people will be wary. So what exactly are the terms of the deal here? How, how is this supposed to fix things? The deal is essentially an agreement to have a ceasefire at sea while the war goes on in the rest of the country. It would envisage a creation of a humanitarian corridor so that cargo ships can get in and out of the port. The ships would be inspected on the way in and on the way out by a joint coordination committee that would be overseen by Turkey and by the United Nations, but has representatives of Ukraine and Russia in it. That would happen in Istanbul. And this coordination center would also oversee the routes that the ship would take, would monitor what the ships are doing at sea, and particularly whether they are attacked. The Ukrainians said they would not accept having any Russian ships escorting the vessels. Therefore, Ukrainian pilots would take the ships through the minefield. The terms of the deal are that Russia gets something out of it in theory, which is that its own grain exports and its own fertilizer exports will also be facilitated. How exactly was this deal struck in the end? It's an unusual deal because it's not between the warring parties, but it's rather an agreement between each of Russia and Ukraine with the United Nations. And the ceremony was quite striking. The two ministers sat as far apart as they could from each other, separated by the Secretary General of the United Nations and the President of Turkey, although they did shake hands rather stiffly at the end of it. And what's your, your read on the, the, the makeup of the agreement itself? Is it fit for purpose? It looks rather thin. It's only two pages long, and there are lots of obvious gaps. There's no enforcement mechanism. So what happens when one or other side disregards it? Secondly, it's supposed to have a humanitarian corridor. We don't know what the route of that will be. There's supposed to be minimum distances from that corridor that the belligerents are supposed to respect. That distance has not been set. And then there's a wider question as to whether the agreement can hold. At a time when the two sides are fighting, will they really respect the, the idea of carving out a part of their conflict from the general hostilities? Hard to believe. Previous ceasefires in Ukraine have not held. 
And the Russians ultimately want control of Ukraine, not just a bit of land. Therefore, if they're not getting what they want on land, they may try to seek it at sea. Ultimately, people ask, why would Vladimir Putin want to throw Ukraine a lifeline at a time when his forces are making very slow progress on the ground? There's a political answer to this, which is that he was under pressure from countries that are friendly to Russia in the Middle East, in Africa. And perhaps he thought this was a small price to pay to maintain some support around the world, or at least the willingness of countries to sit on the fence rather than take sides with the West. And for a lot of poor countries in Africa and the Middle East, the price of food is a real, real problem. Ultimately, the Russians want to avoid the blame. So this may be part of their blame-evading tactics. Whether they can keep it up is unclear, and this weekend's attack raises serious questions. So to your mind, will Russia's attack at the weekend have an impact on the way the deal will be carried out, if indeed it's carried out at all? I think people will attempt to keep it on the road. They will keep attempting to negotiate these safe passages. But I think mainly the problem is going to be that commercial shippers, ship owners and insurance companies will be asking very hard questions about uh, whether these safety guarantees are to be believed. There may be a brave country that's willing to do that. People have suggested that countries like Egypt, who are friendly to Russia, might want to escort ships into port. But right now, Turkey has blocked passage for all military ships into the Black Sea, except for those belonging to the literal states whose ships are based there. So trying to bring any kind of escort or convoying system in will be very complicated. And as things stand now, what chances do you give this deal? I lean to pessimism, in part because of the attack that happened this weekend. I think the war is going to probably go on for months and possibly into next year. And I think wars that go on for a long time tend to get nastier rather than more civilized. And therefore, the Russians will have an incentive to try and continue to strangle Ukraine's exports. What would stop them is the opprobrium from the world. So I would still give it a 30 or 40% chance of holding. But I don't think we should be very optimistic that this is going to be a lasting agreement. Anton, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In the closing days of 2010, thousands of Tunisians took to the streets, fed up with poverty, with corruption, most of all with the dictator of more than a quarter century, Zine El Abedin Ben Ali. What those demonstrators started became the Arab Spring, 
The despot was thrown out and the protest mood spread. For a while, Tunisia was hailed as the lone success story to emerge from the revolutions that followed, a fragile republic on its way to a solid democracy. It's not playing out that way. The people are once again taking to the streets. The country has ended up with what seems to be another would-be dictator, Qais Sayed, and he would like the people to sign off on his plans. Tunisians will vote today in a referendum on whether to approve a new constitution. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. This has been a project about a year in the making by their authoritarian-minded president, Qais Sayed. Of course, Tunisia right now is in political turmoil. It's facing a worsening economic crisis. But the president has spent the better part of a year laser-focused on writing a new constitution to the exclusion of almost everything else. And he will ask voters today to trudge to the polls at the end of a long holiday weekend in the middle of summer to cast their vote on this new constitution. And we've spoken before about how Mr. Syed seems to be grabbing power in Tunisia. This is just the next step then? It is. The referendum comes one year to the day after President Syed suspended parliament and suspended much of the existing constitution. Since then, he has dissolved the parliament altogether. He's been ruling by decree for the past year. And he has begun taking over democratic institutions, including the Electoral Commission. He stocked the commission with uh, his own appointees. He has sacked dozens of judges who he has accused of very nebulous charges of corruption. He has really shifted the country away from being a parliamentary system towards increasingly what looks like one-man rule. And this new constitution that uh, he's putting before voters would formalize much of this power grab. So what exactly is in it then? Broadly, it moves the country towards a strong presidency. It would allow the president to hire and fire ministers instead of the prime minister. He can also appoint and dismiss judges. It would give him the power to propose laws, to draft budgets, to make treaties. All of these things where parliament has until now uh, had a role in the democratic process, that role is either being struck out altogether or being minimized. And I think one of the most telling bits of the constitution is It gives the president the power to dissolve parliament, but it doesn't give parliament any mechanism to remove the president. So instead of checks and balances, instead of two even branches of government, it really subordinates the legislature to the executive. There are also some other odd clauses in it. There's a bit about religion and state that seems to give the president the power to decide what is God's will, to decide what are the principles or the edicts of Islam and and how will that be interpreted in Tunisia. All of this sort of being described, uh, one political scientist I spoke to called it an unchecked concentration of power in the hands of the president. And you say that President Syed has been focusing on this to to the exclusion of all else. I mean, is, is this just written with his hand? It seems that way. No one is quite sure who wrote it, though. Let's contrast this with the existing constitution, which was approved in 2014 in a referendum. That took two years to produce. It went through multiple drafts before it was put to voters. There was an elected constituent assembly that was in charge of producing it and and members of that assembly toured the country. They had meetings with civil society groups, with students, with other segments of society. They held public debates where anyone could show up and offer their opinion about the constitution. It wasn't a perfect process by any stretch, but it left a lot of people in Tunisia feeling that they had a say in the outcome. This time, there was no real public consultation. There was an online survey that the presidency asked citizens to participate in. Less than 4% of them bothered to do so. 
There was a committee appointed only in May and asked to draft the Constitution by the end of June. So they were given about a month to do their work. And the final product that they submitted is very different from the text that is now being put to voters in this referendum. The law professor who led this commission has since denounced the president's draft. He says it's very different from what they submitted. He calls it dangerous. It seems like the president himself or the handful of close advisors around him made a number of last minute changes to what came out of this committee and sloppy ones at that. A week after they released their final draft, the presidency had to acknowledge that there were some mistakes. It didn't say, for example, whether or not parliament would be directly elected by voters or indirectly selected by local committees, uh, really fundamental stuff that simply was not mentioned in the draft. So uh, really from beginning to end here, it has been a, a secretive and sloppy process. But it will, in the end, be handed over to voters to to decide upon what do you think they will make of all this? I think many of them will just decide to stay home. The run-up to the referendum has been very muted. You have the president who has no political party, no political apparatus around him. So he hasn't done much campaigning, urging a yes vote on the Constitution. There has been even less of a no campaign. Uh, you have several big political parties, including Anahda, which is the main Islamist faction in Tunisian politics, that are urging a boycott instead of a no vote. The main trade union, which is a very powerful force in Tunisian politics, hasn't taken a position on this. There's been some internal disagreement between the union leadership about whether to urge a no vote or a boycott or, or not to say anything and then Tunisians don't really need much encouragement to boycott this vote. Turnout has been falling since the revolution. It seems likely that the constitution will pass, if only for lack of a, an organized no campaign. And there's no minimum threshold. There's no minimum turnout required to pass it. But if it passes, it will probably be with low turnout and, and therefore a small minority of Tunisians who are approving this. And, and why do you think Mr. Syed is even going to the trouble here? All the changes he's made so far have, have happened relatively smoothly. Why, why bother with this constitutional business? I think a lot of it is ideological. I mean, this is a man who was a constitutional law professor before he became president and has been talking about changes to the constitution, changes to Tunisia's democratic system for years. And so some of this, I think, is just he has the opportunity to do this now, and, and he's been waiting for a long time to do this. And it sets up a strong presidency for the rest of his term. But it doesn't solve any of the underlying issues in Tunisian politics. It doesn't solve the sort of deadlock that has plagued their democratic government over the past decade, the infighting between Islamists and secularists, between leftists and neoliberals. All of these ideological splits are not going to be resolved by passing a new constitution, nor is it going to do anything on the economy, which when you talk to Tunisians is the most pressing issue. Unemployment is 16%, inflation is above 8%. Tourism, which is a vital sector for the economy uh, that still hasn't recovered from its pandemic-induced slump. The government is trying to line up a $4 billion loan from the IMF, but hasn't made a lot of progress on those talks. And the president really isn't interested in legislating or, or making policy on the economy. He's delegated this to a, a fairly weak prime minister and a fairly weak cabinet. And he is pursuing his political goals, even though most Tunisians don't really want him to and don't think it's a priority. And yet what he's doing with this, this referendum, as you say, is, is formalizing the, the system as he wants it. I mean, what does that say to you about the, the chances for Tunisia's democracy going forward? It was in rough shape to begin with. I mean, even when Syed came in in 2019, uh, many Tunisians were 
not tired of democracy, but felt like it hadn't delivered for them. Many Tunisians associated democracy with economic growth. They thought overthrowing a dictator 10 years ago, installing a democratic government would improve my standard of living, would give me a better job. And it hasn't done those things. The economy has been sluggish for a decade. So people don't necessarily want to scrap their democracy, but they feel their democracy is not delivering for them. And, and that's the backdrop to all of this. But I think, unfortunately, what happens now is you have a president who already has ruled a bit like an authoritarian over the past year, who will now have license to be more authoritarian. It strengthens him. It allows him to be more autocratic. And then who knows who comes next? That could be an even more autocratic figure that comes in after him that can walk in and take the tools in this constitution and move Tunisia even further back towards dictatorship. Greg, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. From the earliest days of motorsport, the greatest thrill for European drivers and fans lay in Grand Prix racing. Through the decades, the sport's most celebrated races have been fought on tracks like Italy's Monza, Spa in Belgium, and of course, the harborside street circuit in Monaco. In Monte Carlo, Monaco, 19 European racing drivers roar off in the famous Grand Prix of Monaco. There are 11 hairpin turns and almost no level stretches on this two- Over the years, Formula One racing has expanded into countries beyond Europe, notably in the Middle East. But it hadn't made much of an impact in America until recently. ESPN's extension of its broadcasting deal with Formula One with a 15-fold increase in price shows the fact that Formula One is gradually expanding in America. Mike Jakeman writes about sport for The Economist. The fact it's growing so quickly is really a story of the fact that broadcasting rights are still not worth very much. The new deal covering three seasons is still only worth $75 million. We're talking a long way shy of what the big American sports leagues bring in for their rights. But nevertheless, it suggests that Formula One is heading towards America. I mean, we we know that Americans like motorsport. What appetite is there for Formula One? The big thing we've seen in the past year is the launch of the Miami Grand Prix, which took place a couple of months ago, and was everything you would imagine a Formula One race in Miami to be. It was bold, glitzy, a bit naff. All the right people from Instagram were there. The race was almost a slight sideshow, but it was a tremendous commercial success. We had the biggest domestic American audience for a Formula One Grand Prix in 20 years, and it was all over social media. This is exactly what the new owners of Formula One, who are themselves American, were hoping for from the event. And that's partly why they've also signed up to have another race, a third American Grand Prix in the calendar, uh, in Las Vegas from 2023. So what's the backstory? Why has it taken so long for the glitzy American outpost of this sport to, to take hold? It's largely because the man who owned Formula One and ran it as a kind of personal fiefdom for decades, a British businessman called Bernie Eccleston, he liked the appeal of Formula One as a European, slightly old money, exclusive sport. There have been attempts to run Grand Prix in America several times previously, but none of them have really stuck. But this has changed since Mr. Eccleston has gradually been moved aside, first by a private equity firm called CBC that took a controlling stake in 2006. And then more recently, after CBC sold it to a US media conglomerate called Liberty, who have taken uh, Mr. Eccleston out of the picture entirely. Mr. Eccleston actually told an American interviewer, Graham Bensinger, that he didn't believe that American audiences had the patience to sit through an entire Formula One race. 
They need to sit and watch. No good getting up and go and have a drink or something or a hot dog. Got to be there. So really, this is just a matter of Liberty Media and American company that is that is making cracking America the priority here. Yeah, that's right. And it's done a, a fairly smart job of figuring out how to do that alongside simply hosting more races. So, for example, it commissioned the hugely successful Netflix-produced series called Drive to Survive. These guys have an almost fighter pilot mentality, and that's what separates them from mere mortals. Which basically acts as a gateway for American fans into Formula One to learn about the drivers and to watch it in a very, a, a very compelling series. Social media is another area that Mr. Eccleston was very condescending about, and as a result has seen a, a lowering of the age profile of Formula One viewers around the world. So how far do you think this expansion could go? I mean, could this become a, a primarily American sport? I think we're a long way off that. Obviously, there's a huge domestic competition in the form of NASCAR, and we're still only talking about three races. So we're a long way from American dominance. The next phase, if you like, is to have a wholly owned American team with American drivers. That is something that I would expect to see happen in the next decade or so. Under the current commercial agreement between the owners of Formula One and the teams that produce the cars that race in the Grand Prix, there's a current limit on the number of races in a season of 25. And this is already causing a squeeze because they want to sign up as new races in the US, as we've mentioned, and also in South Africa, as well as all of these more frontier markets that have come into the sport in the last decade or so. So several European races that have been in the calendar for many years, including Spa in Belgium and Paul Ricard in France, are on the slate to be cut to every other year uh, events to make room for primarily another American race and also potentially one in South Africa. Mike, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.